Section 31 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G.K. Chesterton. Section 31. An Extraordinary Argument. When anybody offers a defiance to my views, and professes to be prepared with a defense of that defiance, I've always desired to accept his challenge and give him his chance. When Mr. Cecil Maitland mentions me by name in this paper, and pits his view of Catholic ethics against mine, it's especially necessary that there should be no doubt about the answer. On some points, indeed, there has never been any doubt about it. I really have not the patience to pick up the pieces of the poor old argument, torn ten thousand times to rags, about the immorality of the textbooks of the confessional. Mr. Maitland must excuse me. Fatigue overcomes me with the very thought of it. If he does not very much mind, I would rather it were about Maria Monk, or the horrors of the Continental Sunday, or the very improper conduct of Mr. Guy Fawkes, or something a little brighter than the confessional business and yet on the same general level of culture. I am also quite content to leave Mr. Maitland to untie himself as best he can from the hideous entanglement of his own argument on this subject. Apparently, he denounces the clerical books for immorality, admires the secular story for the same immorality, and is much gratified because the immorality he admires is copied from the immorality he denounces. It all seems to be a little mixed. Nor is it necessary to dwell long on the other details. The comparison between St. Thomas Aquinas and Freud is rather crushing and cruel for the poor German professor, nor do I clearly understand what the comparison means. It may be that St. Thomas Aquinas deals with some of the subjects of Freud. If the critic can suggest any subject that St. Thomas Aquinas does not deal with, it will be much more enlightening. I have not read St. Thomas any more than I have read the Encyclopedia Britannica, and many unpleasant topics are possibly touched on in both. But the friends of Freud say he interprets life by subconsciousness, and the foes of Freud say he's mad on sex. And anybody who said either of these things about St. Thomas would certainly be mad on something. But here again Mr. Maitland seems to get into difficulties entirely on his own account. Let us assume the highly historical proposition that the mind of St. Thomas was poisoned with sex, because it was poisoned with Catholicism. Let us adopt the critic's own comparison, and say he is poisoned like Freud. The question still remains, or rather rises with all the dramatic challenge of a detective story, who poisoned Freud? I cannot think that it was the Jesuits. I cannot think that even Mr. Maitland can hear their cat-like tread behind the curtains. The detective story suggests many more of the same kind. Who poisoned Zola? Was his immorality due solely to his devout Catholicism? Did no other influences, beyond his penances and pilgrimages, fill him with these dark emotions? or is all to be explained by his superstitious self-prostration before the shrine of Lourdes. Even in a matter in which I feel so strongly, I should like to be as friendly as possible, and I fear it is not kind to say that Mr. Cecil Maitland reminds me of Mr. Lloyd George. It makes it little better to add that this is only because Mr. Lloyd George reminds me of hundreds of other people. Our leaders can hardly be said to be leading, even in the sense of misleading, they are following in a rut that is indeed trampled, but is now very nearly abandoned. The politician said something recently that we have all heard a hundred times, and most of us heard too often, wondering why anybody ever said it even once. It was concerned with allegations of the failure of Christianity to prevent the Great War. 
That many may still be saying this is but another evidence of how few of them ever think of thinking what they're saying. To begin with, of course, no authoritative Christians ever dreamed of saying that wars would now cease, and the wilder sort of Christians were always saying that wars would now be multiplied, being among the apocalyptic portents of the last days. As a matter of fact, the people who really did prophesy that wars would now cease were not the Christians, but the anti-Christians. The people who really did say that war was a thing of the past were generally the people who also said that Christianity was a thing of the past. It was agnostics and anti-clericals of the type of Carnegie who said, in so many words, that there would be no more wars. It is they who were false prophets, if any people were false prophets. It was the Marxian materialists who were always telling us that a general strike, among the proletarians in all nations, would prevent any conflict between those nations. It is they who failed, if anybody failed, to prevent the Great War. It was they who claimed to be able to do it, and they who showed that they could not do it. Nobody had ever claimed that a combination of bishops and curates all over the world could do it, and those who boasted, and failed, then had the impudence to turn round and attribute the failure to those who had never made the boast. But the impudence involved here is even more simple and startling. In any case, it seems brazenly irrational that because people have failed to be Christians, they should say that Christianity has failed. It might be mildly suggested to them that they need not look quite so far afield for the failure. My mother tells me not to climb a certain apple tree to steal apples, and I do it in spite of her. A bough breaks, a bulldog pins me by the throat, a policeman takes me to prison, whence I eventually return to shake my head reproachfully at my mother, and say, in a sad and meditative manner, I had hoped better things of you. Alas, there is something pathetic about this failure of motherhood to influence the modern mind. I fear we must all admit that maternity as an institution is barren, and must be abandoned altogether. The impudence of this illogical shifting of responsibility is bad enough in the case of the Christian councils of peace and pardon, in their strife against the human habits of vainglory and vengeance. But it's a thousand times more monstrous in the case to which Mr. Maitland applies it, the case of the ideal of purity and the practice of profligacy. There, the case is not even complicated, as is the case of war, by the possibility of Christian and heroic war. Here, it seems, man is really to treat the religion like the imaginary mother. Instead of blaming himself for not having obeyed her, he begins to abuse her for not having been obeyed. He first despises her advice, and then despises her for giving advice that can be despised. As a general attitude, this would be sufficiently outrageous in its intellectual injustice and insolence. In the particular case in which it is applied, it is outrageous in fact and history as well. The critic has the credit of inventing an entirely new slander against the Irish nation. It is a charge so false that none of the furious and malignant enemies of that nation have ever even attempted to make it before. He takes one particular person who happens to be an Irishman, and whose literary works are said to be very sensual or immoral. He then suggests that the writer is sensual because he is Irish, and that the Irish are sensual because they are Catholic. At least, unless he does that, I cannot make any sense out of his argument. Now, it is a matter of common confession and common sense that the Irish are not notable for their sensuality. Men would admit it who admit nothing else in their favor. Men would admit it because they could not deny it. The Irish are accused of being murderous, of being treacherous, of being incurably lawless, of being insanely irrational of living for a dance of death only explicable by their being possessed of devils, but they are not accused of being grosser than other peoples in the things of sex, because the contrary is a matter of fact, and almost a matter of statistics. What possible rhyme or reason can there be in proving the effect of a religion on one Irishman, 
when it doesn't have that effect on one in a thousand of any other Irishman. If one albino were born in a tribe of African Negroes, would he say that the tropical sun burns everybody white? If one Chinaman had his pigtail cut off, should we say that Confucianism had always prevented the growth of pigtails? Why cannot people attacking Catholicism retain any common sense? Anyhow, if Mr. Maitland wants to attack Catholicism, he might be advised not to do it with suggestions which thousands of people simply happen to know to be the reverse of the fact. I'm not particularly proud of believing that there is positive evil in the world. I have no pride in it for the same reason that I have no doubt of it. My shame and my certainty both come from the same thing, that I have found the evil in myself. But in so far as it was encouraged by outer influences, I know it was not by religious influences, and could not possibly have been by Catholic influences. I know very well that I could find food for all the vilest cravings in the universe in the ordinary modern materialistic city, with its materialistic literature and philosophy. The suggestion that somebody or other had to go to a confessional box to find it is as absurd a suggestion as that he had to go to church in order to find a crowd of people. It's like saying that London contains no smoke except incense smoke, or no dirt except the dust and ashes of ascetics. It is simply not worth talking about. End of section 31